one of the things that we often struggle with as followers of Jesus is that sometimes we turn following Jesus into a series of do's and don'ts. It can become a matter of this is the thing that Christians do and this is the thing that Christians don't do. Sometimes we can even project this onto other people. Sometimes if you have a conversation with someone who's not a Christian, that might be their view of who you are and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They may see you simply as one, someone who has a set of rules. And these are the things that you follow and that you do. And sometimes in those conversations, they may feel like all you do is try and impose your rules on other people. And when we read the Scripture, it's easy to see how we might get to that point. We're in a study on the book of Ephesians, and so we've been learning what Paul has to say in this letter, and he's talked about in the first three chapters this incredible picture of who God is and all that God has done, of rescuing us out of darkness and into light, of making us into new creatures, of taking these two people, Jews and Gentiles, breaking down barriers and making them into one, of seating Christ on the throne and ruling all over all creation and defeating the principalities and powers. And then you turn the page into the chapter 4, and all of a sudden it's about all these things to do and in Christian speak, sometimes if you're learning Bible studies, you talk about application. You know, like you read the story and here's what it says and then you get to the application. And Eugene Peterson talks about this and he says one of the things is the temptation and the application is we begin sometimes with here's what God has done all this stuff and now here's what I have to do. But what Paul makes clear time and time again in Ephesians and throughout all his letters, and Jesus says the same thing, is they're not separate things, that the things we do are part of our participation, part of our life in God, that our behavior comes from who we are. And so last week, we talked about this idea of taking off and putting on. And so this week, we're going to continue on and looking at some of these things and what I want you to get, and what I want us to make sure we get is that following Jesus is not simply do's and don'ts. It's not simply about a generic morality, about simply being a good person. Are there things God calls us to do? Absolutely. But it's more than that. It's not simply trying to be a good person. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 3. And here Paul says, but among you... There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And so he goes on and he says, one, you might notice this sexual immorality, impurity, or greed, which at first glance, they seem like an odd combination, don't they? Think like, oh, we're talking about sexual immorality, and then all of a sudden we're talking about greed. But I think there's a connection between those two and we're going to get into that more a little bit later. What is the connection between those two? And why is Paul so concerned with these? And again, here's one of those topics where if you have a conversation with someone outside the church and you ask them the, their opinion of Christians and what Christians are like, you might get the answer that Christians seem overly obsessed with what people do in their bedroom. That they're always concerned about what somebody else is doing. And you hear, you're reading Paul, and you think, well, here's Paul. That's what he's talking about. But he's also talking about greed and how these are connected. So, one, we might say, well, what is this 
sexual immorality, and some translations that say might, might say fornication, the Greek word is porneia, which might sound familiar, porneia, so we, where we get the word pornography. And it simply means this because Paul doesn't go on to define it. He says, well, here's what sexual immorality is. But for Paul, the basic definition of sexual immorality is any sexual act outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. That's how Paul is defining what he means by sexual immorality. That's the consistent witness of the Scripture. And so here when Paul says that, he's simply giving shorthand. He's not going into all the details. He doesn't say, here's what I mean by that. He simply means that the, sexual, the, the Christian standard is one man, one woman in the context of biblical marriage, or faithfulness in heterosexual marriage, celibacy, and singleness. And so that brings up a bigger question. We're not going to get into all the details of that um, and thinking on what the Christian standard is and what that all means. But I do want to kind of take an aside here and talk a little bit about um, sometimes one of the major um, concerns that sometimes people have within the church or a challenge maybe, I don't know what the right word is to describe it is, is how do we approach folks who identify as LGBTQ? And so, we're not going, this isn't the point, and so if you're thinking, oh, we're, that's not what we're going to talk about today. But I do want to invite you, if you are interested, I have a 10-week Bible study that I'm going to be starting sometime soon on how we minister, how we love people in the LGBTQ community, and again, even just the language sometimes, and even learning, what's the right language we use? How do we speak to people? What, what does the Bible say? And more importantly, how do we love people? Because that's the standard that Jesus calls us to, is loving people. And so if you're interested in this study, and it's going to require a little bit of work on your part, there's some videos, but a little bit of reading on your part and participating in that. If you're interested in participating in that study, I haven't decided what night, maybe we have to do it a couple different times if a lot of people are interested in it. But if you're interested in the study, um, there's some green cards in the back of the pews there, the little connection cards, and you can just write your name on there and say, hey, I'm interested in the grace and truth study, or I'm interested in the Bible study, and I'll know what you mean. And you can drop those in the offering box at the back there. You can give them to me. Um, or if you want, you can just send me an email, send me a text or something, and say, hey, I'd like to... Or if you just want to know, like, tell me more about this study. What's it more about? What's it going to look like? And I just want to say that because I know this is one of the concerns that many of us have. It's something I've been thinking about is how do we deal with this? When, when I look at Paul and sexual immorality, sometimes that's where our mind first jumps to for some people. But that's not what we're going to focus on today. But I do want us to know that we will be, have a chance to talk about that, and really it's one of those things that requires a conversation. Because the reality is that most of us are touched, affected in some way. And if you're like me, and I know you're not complete like me, it's not always easy. It's a challenging conversation. It's a difficult conversation. But the key is what we want to know is, how do we love? Because that's what God calls us to do, is to love our neighbors. So how do we love people, and, and how do we live in a society, and how do we begin to understand these issues? Okay, end of that aside, and back to the passage that we're at here. And so it says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. All right. What this is saying is, one is, 
Who's this a discussion with? This is a discussion and a letter written to the people in the church. Paul isn't writing a letter and saying, hey, all you people who aren't part of the church, here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. He's talking to people in the church, and he's saying, you who are God's holy people, this is what it looks like to live. In other words, this is a family discussion. This isn't general morality in the ancient world. There were oftentimes kind of these lists of things, and we see it sometimes in our world today. You know, it's been popular oftentimes in the school to have these character curriculums, like to be a good person, right? And we grow up and we hear all these things, and maybe even we were told by our parents or by our grandparents, be a good girl, be a good boy. And we had this idea of what general morality looked like. That's not what Paul is doing here. What Paul is talking about is, this is what it looks like to be God's holy people. He says, these are improper for God's holy people. In other words, it doesn't fit with who we're meant to be. We're meant to be somebody. We've been made to be somebody. We're created to be somebody. And this is not what it looks like. And so he says, these things don't have anything to do with that. And so we begin to ask ourselves the one question is, why does he talk so much about sexual sins? Why does, why does he emphasize this? There's a couple reasons. One is, I think what Paul is doing is trying to distinguish followers of Jesus from the society around him. In the ancient world, there was a lot of sexual immorality. And so he's saying, you have to live differently. When you've been called into following Jesus, you live a life that's different. But I think there's some other reason is, why in the Bible does it talk so much about sexual sins? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talks about it a little bit. And so this other verse where he says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one, one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. What he's saying is that when two people come together sexually, something happens. There have been studies, scientific studies done that say there is a connection, an emotional, a physical, a psychological connection between two people. And so what he's saying, it's not simply this physical act, but there's something deeper that happens when it goes on. And I think one of the reasons that God focuses so often in the Scripture on sexual sin and often uses something else, because if we go back to the Old Testament, one of the things that we often see is that when people, the people of God go into idolatry, when they're worshiping other gods, the language that God uses often is the language of adultery. And what he's saying is there is this deep connection when you, what Paul is saying, when you are with someone sexually, there's this intimacy, there's this connection, and there's this saying, you know, it's just you and I, there's no one else. And what God is saying is, I want the same thing of his people. I don't want you with other people. It's a way to say, there's a, a relationship between these two things, a giving of yourself that in the same way that we're called to give ourselves to just one person, we're called to give ourselves solely to God. There was a movie a number of years ago um, with Tom Cruise called Vanilla Sky. And in the movie, there's this relationship between him and this woman, and eventually he breaks it off with this woman. And the woman says something to him after the breakup, which sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul. 
And she says this, she says, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? She said, don't you know, see the profound wisdom that sometimes comes in odd places. Tom Cruise movie is not the typical place you think, wow, there's something exciting to say. But don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not, whether you do or not. And so why does Paul talk about it? He says, because there's something that goes on. Paul understood this deeply. And so he's saying, we have to be different from the society around us, and we have to realize that our sexual behaviors make a difference in who we are. And so well, this is why he talks about sexual immorality, which is something he brought up earlier in chapter 4, verse 19. He said, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So, what's the connection between these two? Why is he going on and on about this? And I think in order to understand that, we have to go back to the verse before that. We talked a little bit about this last week at the end of, or in chapter 5, verse 2, where he's talking about walking the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. couple things to note there. One is we don't earn love. I mean, this is absolutely, this is essential. We don't earn God's love. It's something that He gives to us. And we also operate out of being loved. And I kind of talked about this last week. Is one of the things we do is we realize we are loved, and so we operate, we're living this out of love. And so what's the connection then? And so I wanted to go back to that because I think there's a connection because notice how He describes what love looks like. He says, just as Christ loved us. Well, how did Christ love us? He says, he gave himself up as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice. In other words, he's describing, he's saying, this is what love looks like. Love is something that gives of the self. And so then when Paul starts to talk about sexual immorality and greed, that's the connection. He's saying sexual immorality and greed are a disordered love because oftentimes what happens in sexual immorality is that it's a focus on what I can get out of it. It's a focus on what it brings to me. And so I mentioned earlier this Greek word porneia which we, from which we get the word pornography. If we think about the plague of pornography, a multi-billion dollar industry, an industry that brings in annually more money than all the sports, you know, the NFL, Major League Baseball, the Hockey League, and all the major TV networks combined. Multi-billion dollar industry. And think about what is the nature of pornography. The nature of pornography is something that sees other people simply as someone to bring me pleasure. That's what pornography is. It's, it's, it's an industry focused on how can other people bring me pleasure. And what Paul is saying is that sexual immorality and greed are often focused that same way. It's looking at other people and saying, what can I get from them? You see, because the contrast with marriage is it's a giving of self. It's the way of Jesus is to give. Love is to give of self. But sexual immorality is this focus on getting. As Eugene Peterson says it, 
that what happens is we get sex depersonalized for consumption. And so sexual immorality is this act in which we're looking and saying that we're trying to get rather than trying to give. And so here's the connection we have to recognize is that's what love looks like, is that when Paul is talking about it, that's why he makes this transition is, what does love look like? Love looks like giving of self. But often, so often, sexual immorality is based on what can I get from the other person? It begins to see other people as objects. We see it in our advertising. I mean, how often is our advertising filled with people wearing less clothes than they normally need to wear, looking like nobody actually looks in real life? And it's saying that here, if you have this, then you can enjoy. And it sees and then it turns people, and most, most often women, something as something simply to be consumed or to be feasted on. It distorts and, and, and treats people as simply an object. And so when Paul says, follow the way of love, looking at people as how can I give to them, he's saying one of the common ways that we begin to distort that is through sexual immorality. And that's why there's the connection with greed, because greed is the exact same thing. Greed is what? Seeing things as simply to be consumed rather to, to give. But the key is that there's a self-sacrificing love that must shape all of our values. So when we think about sexual immorality, we say, is it something that looks like that one woman, one man in the context of marriage, or is it something where we're simply seeing other people as something to be used? And we could say more about greed, and I don't, given the time, really talk more about that, but one is to recognize that there is, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. So I want to move down a little bit, and he talks then in Chapter 5, verse 4, he says, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. In other words, it's not just our actions, it's the words that we use. That our words affect us. That it's not just locker room talk, it's not just things. And so I'm going to give an example that I've seen used oftentimes that connects with this earlier one. And I think, again, it comes from another movie, um, Talladega Nights, but it's been used oftentimes by, I've seen pastors I know using this kind of language, and they'll describe their spouse as their smoking hot wife. And some of you may have no idea what I'm talking about, and be thankful for that. But it's become a not uncommon thing in many evangelical Christian circles to go that way, where the pastor gets up there and he says, oh, and here I've got my smoking hot wife over here. Now think about that kind of language. What does using language like that to describe one's spouse communicate? It makes her into an object, doesn't it? Something to just be consumed. It's like, oh, here's my smoke. I said, at first I thought, oh, that's just getting, people don't actually say that. Because I read an article where I was talking about this, this trend among pastors say it. And then I saw pastor friends of mine on Facebook using that very same language to describe their wives. And I think that's what Paul is getting at. He said, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which is out of place. 
He said that is the kind of language that shapes, because when we use language, our language shapes our thoughts. Think about it this way, and we know this well enough. If you have a child, and you go through life telling that child that he or she is stupid, what begins to go on in their minds? They begin to believe that they are stupid, that they cannot succeed. And in the same way, if the language you use to describe your spouse, in particular in this case, men describing their wives as their smoking hot wife, what does it begin to put in the thought of the wife? That she is simply an object, that she is something simply to be consumed, as it does for all the people who are listening. And so when Paul is saying here, as he's saying, this is the language that he's doing. Notice how he does this again and again, and we're going to get to the language here and think about the way the language shapes us now. Because then in verse 8, he says, for once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He doesn't say simply that you lived in darkness once and now are coming into the light. He says, but now you are light. And in so the same way that that coarse language, that obscenity that can begin to shape the way we think or calling a child stupid can become to begin to shape the way he thinks, Paul recognizes that what he wants us to hear again and again, back to the very first verse of the letter of the Ephesians, he calls them what? Saints. He says, you're transformed. And now he says to the people of God, he says, you are light. He wants us to hear that, people. He wants us to hear that, church, that you are light in the Lord, that you are dearly loved children, that you are God's holy people. He wants us to hear those things and internalize those and begin to live into that. I heard a pastor tell a story a while back, and he was talking about a young woman who was a teacher, and she um, worked with Teach for America, and she went into this um, inner city school, and, and in this school, she was a first grade teacher. And many of her students, they, this school didn't have a kindergarten. And so many of these students, she, one of the things was she had to teach them to read. Some of them didn't know how to hold a pencil. Some of them weren't even sure which way to hold the book, which was right side up and upside down. Some of them knew their letters, some of them didn't. And so now she's saying, how can I begin to teach these children how to read. And she came up with a brilliant idea. She recognized how children work. And she recognizes that the way children, if you've been around children, is they're always looking at the kids who are a little bit older than them. Right? And so what this pastor described it as, he said, he said, I can be with my son and I can be out there playing with him and everything's great and he's all engaged. And then like, you know, his son was like five at the time. And he said, then like a seven-year-old comes along and like all of a sudden dad doesn't exist because there's that kid over there. And so this teacher, uh, Crystal Jones, I think was her name, came up with this brilliant idea. She began to refer to these children as scholars. And she said, you are scholars, and scholars are people who love to learn and encourage learning. And so she referred to them each by day. They were all, when they'd come in the classroom, they were scholar this and scholar that, you know, scholar Johnson and scholar... Franzen. And so there were these names that were given to these kids. And she, got me, she says, by the end of the year, my goal is to make you into third graders. In fact, and what she found was six weeks. So kids got to the point where they didn't want to miss school. They wanted to be there 
because they were afraid they were going to miss out because what did, what did they want more than anything else? They wanted to be like the third graders. And within six weeks into the year, the kids were reading at a first grade level because she realized the power of naming and of shaping and of identifying these things. And this is what Paul is getting at here is when he says, you are dearly loved children, when you are God's holy people, you are light in the Lord. He wants us to hear that language and begin to shape and remember who we are. And when we remember those things, that when we are dearly loved children, we are God's holy people, that we are light in the Lord, it begins to shape how we live. In other words, we're characterized by light. We have nothing to do with the dark. And that's what he goes on. He says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, this is verse 11, but rather expose them. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine in you. And in other words, he says, move from this place of being dead to being alive and being light in the Lord. He's not calling for separation from people, but separation from their deeds. Not with a holier-than-thou attitude, but remember that it begins here and it's recognizing who we are. And so Paul is, this is what Paul is getting at essentially in these things. Is he's saying we've been called to shine. Perhaps if you grew up in the church, you remember learning a little song. With this little light of mine, right? But I would argue Paul is saying something far more significant. It's not that we have a little tiny light. He's like, you are a giant light. He's not saying you got this little candle. He's saying you're one of those giant mag lights that's got like eight batteries in it that you can use as a baseball bat if you need to. Or one of those like those headlights now that blind you when you're driving down the road. You know, they're like 500,000 lumens. They're just like, Pfft. he's saying, you're not just a little light. He says, you are light in the Lord that the light of God shines through us. And therefore, because of that, we live differently. We don't live differently to become light. He says, you are light. You are God's holy people. You are dearly loved children. So therefore, live this way. Separated from the deeds of darkness and shining light. And when we live that way, we shine in that way. Paul doesn't give us all the answers about what it looks like to follow Jesus and to be light in the Lord. And we have to discern that partly by living with Christ, by following Him. So what do we do with this? One is we examine ourselves. We let God's light shine and say, where in my life am I reflecting the light? Or where am I light in the Lord? And where am I holding back? Where am I living the way that God, that doesn't fit with being, that are ways that are improper for God's holy people? But I would say it begins this way, that living a life of love begins with knowing we are loved and what love looks like. And so I would invite you to consider, say, how do I love people? How do I love others? And does it reflect the kind of love that Jesus showed to me? The kind of love that gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice? So for you today, there might be one of two things you need to do. Maybe you just need to know you are dearly loved by God. You're wondering, you're uncertain about, can God truly love me? 
and I want you to know this and hear this, that God loves you. He loved you so much that He gave His one and only Son, that God gave Himself up for you, not because you were a good person, but before you were good. And now, if you've recognized that, acknowledged that, now He's saying, now, knowing that you are dearly loved, knowing that you are God's holy people, knowing that you are light in the Lord, now live into that reality. It may be as simple as you think, maybe as simple as simply having a little post-it note, something on your mirror, somewhere you look every day, maybe it's stuck to your phone, that just simply says, you are light in the Lord. You are a dearly loved child. You are God's holy people. And just like the students who by hearing the word scholar began to live into that reality, God invites us to live into the reality of what it looks like to be light, to be His dearly loved children, to be His holy people. And so we get ready to come to the communion table and reminded of that truth, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But then He gives us the strength through the cup and through the bread to live as His holy people. And so may we live as God's holy people. May we live as His dearly loved children. May we be light in the Lord. Amen.